Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Uh, this morning we will be in Isaiah 52:13 through 53:13 on page 779. The page number is now in the bulletin, uh, which is great. It's it's one of those things that you know, like an innovation that you think of, and you're like, wow, we how did we do life without this? You know. Like with the first motorized car. <laughs> All right, Isaiah fifty-two thirteen through fifty-three thirteen. So a little while ago, um, around a year ago, I went to see a movie at the movie theater, um, and when the movie started, it was all blurry. Um, I checked to make sure my glasses were still on. They were. So obviously the projector or something was out of focus, which, you know, it happens. Um, and it seems like a very simple solution, right? Just hop out of the theater, go find a staff member, let them know, they'll run up and adjust the projector. Easy peasy. But in this auditorium of around 200 people, it was, it was IMAX, so it was big, of around 200 people, not a single person did anything. People just sat and watched the blurry movie. There, there were some like murmurings, you know, like what's happening, blah, blah, blah. But why didn't anyone, even I didn't go out and grab a staff member? You know why? Because me and everyone else in that theater was all thinking the same exact thing. Someone else will do it. And when everyone thinks someone else will do it, guess what doesn't get done? The thing, right? So... Finally, after a little while, someone finally decided, okay, someone's got to do it, and they went up and left, and everyone said, like, yay, and applauded, but it took so long. Why wasn't everyone bumping into each other, getting out of the theater, trying to fix this very simple solution, right? It's something called the bystander effect, and this is a, a, a psychological thing that happens where Basically, the more people that are around, the less likely the individual is to help. And we, we kind of see this in our day-to-day -day life, right? If we're in the office and you're walking down the hallway with a coworker and they drop some papers, of course you bend down to help them pick it up. But if you're with a group of coworkers and one person drops their paper, maybe like only one or two people will bend down, but not everyone's going down to help pick up because they all think, oh, the person closer to them will do it or something like that. Or sometimes we can see someone by themselves at church or acting a little sad at church, and we think, oh, a better Christian than me will go talk to them. Or, hey, that's what the elders are for. I, I don't, I don't want to step on any toes. Even though, you know, we're called to be a church family and to act like a family. Or, unfortunately, there's been countless cases of people getting robbed in busy cities and alleyways and people just walking by thinking, oh, someone else will call the police or, oh, I'm too busy, I'm late for work. This happens every single day. And we actually see a huge example of this in the Bible with the Good Samaritan, right? The man gets robbed, he's left on the side of the road and countless people walk by thinking, I'm too busy or I don't, I don't want to touch him or whatever until the Good Samaritan comes and helps. Now, I think one of the biggest examples of the bystander effect in our daily lives isn't something physical of us not physically helping someone, but something psychological. And I think 
it's our view of the death of Jesus. Now, just like how a bystander might react when seeing a crime, we can see the death of Jesus and think, no, that's for someone else. Or, I've been a Christian for X amount of years, I don't, I don't need to think about the death of Jesus again. I already handled that. Or, I don't need Jesus to die for me. I'm, I'm past that point. We could come up with any excuse that we can possibly imagine to prevent us from gazing upon Christ crucified and recognizing that our need for forgiveness is great and our debt has been greatly forgiven. The cross should represent the suffering and pain of our Savior in our place for our sins, but just like the gospel itself in modern-day America, we tend to dilute it down to a watered-down religious token that dilutes the truth in favor of ease and popularity, where we simply walk right past it as a bystander. If we look at a cross, maybe someone has a cross necklace or even this big cross behind me, if we just look at that and think, oh, Christianity, right? Without remembering the pain and suffering, what the cross actually was, then we're diluting the truth. We can look away from the cross in shame, thinking it's not as pretty as other religions, or that's a violent part of the Bible that I don't like to think about. Or we can look away from the cross in pride, thinking it doesn't be- apply to us, and it's below us to remember Jesus' death. Oh, that's what they teach in Sunday school. I'm past that. Give me the, like, meaty theology. Or we can look away from the cross in fear, afraid of the consequences of Jesus' death while ignoring the greater consequences of ignoring it. Don't be a bystander to the suffering of Jesus, but know it, understand it, and remember it. And that's where our text comes in today. It's a really good text to understand the true nature of the suffering of Christ at the cross. We'll see three ways that we can be a bystander in this text. Number one, we can diminish his suffering. The bystander excuse might be like, oh, it wasn't that bad. I don't need to think about it. Two, We can refuse responsibility. We can think that's someone else's problem. Or three, we can have fear of the truth. Oh, I I don't know enough about the situation to react. So let's read our text today and see how when presented with the facts, we can no longer simply be a bystander to the death of Christ. Isaiah writes, Behold, My servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who has considered that he had cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, and he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So first we're going to take a look at the appearance of the suffering servant and how we can often diminish it for our own comfort. We can often be a bystander to the cross of Jesus and think, oh, it wasn't that bad, thinking, I don't need to think about it. We start out in our text with what seems kind of like a contradiction, right? Isaiah describes a servant that acts wisely and is lifted up and exalted, but is with a marred appearance. Look at verse 13 Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Yeah, this is the Jesus that we know, right? Son of God who is God that is being continually worshipped in heaven. But then we take a turn in verse 14. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and the form beyond that of the children of mankind. Now, what happened to Jesus that could cause him to be marred beyond the point where he doesn't even look human anymore. We know that it's at the cross. Now, this is not going to be one of those sermons where I basically do an audio version of the Passion of the Christ and tell you how bad the cross was. But trust me, it wasn't pretty. He was beaten, wearing a crown of thorns, and getting nailed to wooden beams. When that happens to a person... They're not perfectly washed. They're covered in blood, pus, dirt, tears, stripped skin. But we don't really like to think of Jesus on the cross that way, do we? We like to think of him on the cross all muscly, with a six-pack, perfectly clean, flowing hair, gazing up to heaven, and a body that reflects the beauty standards of our time. And I'm serious. Do a simple Google image search, Jesus on the cross, And you'll see tons of paintings and artist renditions where Jesus looks not like a Middle Eastern Jew that had just been beaten and nailed to a cross. He looks more like a white bodybuilder sleeping on a T-shaped bed. And that's not what the cross was. It wasn't easy. It wasn't comfortable. It wasn't attractive. There was suffering. It was painful. It was awful. But we don't just like to water down the cross for our own comfort, right? We don't just glance over the violent and the gruesome parts, but sometimes we like to whitewash Jesus himself. We imagine him to look just like us. White, perfect beard, smile of gold, piercing blue eyes. 
We don't see that image of Jesus in the Bible. Look at verse 2 of our text today. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So if that's not the truth, if that's not actually what Jesus was like, why do, why do we do that? Why do countless people draw Jesus to look like that? Maybe because if Jesus looks like us, it'll be easier for us to listen to him? Because maybe diminishing his suffering on the cross makes us feel like our sins weren't as heavy as they actually were? Or it will be easier to tell others about Jesus on the cross if it's quick and easy. We can often diminish the severity of the cross because, honestly, I think we've gotten comfortable with it. We can reduce it to just a Christian icon rather than the very foundation of our faith. Look at verses 3 and 4. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Look at those words that describe Jesus. Despised, rejected, sorrow, grief, stricken, smitten, afflicted. That doesn't really seem like the smiling male model Jesus that we've been taught to know, does it? Jesus was rejected by men. He wasn't nailed to a cross by a few bad guys while onlookers begged them to stop. No. An angry crowd almost threw a riot because of how badly they wanted him dead. He was mocked and beaten by guards who were supposed to protect him. So don't be a bystander to Jesus dying on the cross and think, oh, no, it was more of a metaphorical death. No. It was a very real death, a very painful death. Jesus was mocked, beaten, and suffered. If we take that away, we take away the weight of our sin and the immense love of the Savior who took it in our place. When we reduce the severity and gruesomeness of history, we take away its importance. If we think back to even like the civil rights age and we think, oh, you know, it was just a bunch of mean white guys that made some not-so-nice laws. And we forget about the, the countless innocent African-Americans that died at the hands of lynching parties, of white families. If we forget about that, if we reduce that, then we reduce all its importance. If we reduce the severity and gruesomeness of history especially the suffering of Christ at his crucifixion, then what do we do? We lie to ourselves and we blindly walk into a gospel of our own creation, not of God's tale of loving sacrifice for us. The cross was not where my Savior mildly suffered for my sake. No. The cross was where my Savior was mocked, 
tortured and brutally murdered for my sake. When we diminish the suffering of our Savior, we diminish the weight of sin that was put upon Him and the amount of love it took for Him to take that in our place. Diminishing the suffering of our Savior means diminishing the gospel itself. Now, denial of the suffering of Jesus is probably tied to the denial of the reason for that suffering, our sins, right? That's the second bystander effect, refusing responsibility, refusing responsibility. The reason that Jesus suffered on the cross was for our sake, taking the punishment for our sins. That punishment for sins is total and complete death, both physically and spiritually. But maybe you think that death on a cross and complete separation from God would be too much of a punishment for your sins. Like you don't think you deserve a lifetime sentence in jail, maybe just a a night in a cell to think it over, right? Or you would say, you know, if Jesus took my punishment for my sins, it would be more of a slap on a wrist than a crucifixion. That's, That's way too far. But it's not too far. The punishment fits the crime. We see that in verses five through nine. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its sewers are silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made of his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So there's two very important parts to the punishment that was given to Jesus. Our sin and his innocence. Our sin and his innocence. So our sins in, the, in these verses are called iniquities, which means immoral behavior. It's, because this, it's written like this because all of us have turned away like sheep, right? A sheep is meant to stay in its pasture, to be cared for and loved. When it goes obey, away, it disobeys. Our God is God. God. He is the one that created us. He is the one that creates what his creation is supposed to do. It's not oppressive because he's God. Just like if you work for a company that has a sexual harassment policy or a bribery policy, that's not oppressive to you. If you work for that company, you follow its policies You don't disobey policies that are meant to put others in safety or to put yourself in safety. If you are God's creation, you don't disobey his rules that are put in place to protect you and others. But we have disobeyed those. Again and again and again and again and again we've disobeyed. All of us have. Look at verse 6. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Not some of us, not the few of us that decide to be weird or rock the boat or do things that, you know, aren't culturally appropriate. All of us, every single one of us. 
And each one of those sins is enough to send Jesus to the cross. The big ones, the small ones, the secret ones, the unknown ones, the ones we have even yet to commit. It was our sins that nailed Jesus to the cross. All of us. First John says that he is the appropriation for our sins, not only for ours, but also the sins of the entire world. Our sins, even here in this room. But not just us, the whole world too. But the good news is that God laid all of those sins onto Jesus at the cross. Our text said that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Even though all of our sins have been put onto Christ, that's very good news because it means all of our sins have been put onto Christ, right? You don't have to be a special Christian to get your sins laid on Christ. You don't have to pray a certain amount of times or give a certain amount of money or be good for a certain amount of days. All of us are sinners, but all of us can be forgiven. So that's our sin. And the next one is Christ's innocence. Look again at verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers are silent, so he opened not his mouth. These words, oppressed, afflicted, slaughter, those all imply innocence. All those words are verbs done to someone, right? Compared to the previous verse, iniquities, which is an action done by us. All of these are done to someone. And how did Jesus respond to all this affliction happening to him? It's repeated twice that he did not open his mouth. He did not provide testimony on his behalf. He didn't try to fight it. He allowed it to happen. And do you notice the second mention of sheep here, included with lamb? We are described as sheep. Jesus is described as a lamb. Both animals, both same playing field. But a sheep that wanders away is a bad sheep. A sheep that continually disobeys is a bad sheep that deserves to be slaughtered. And yet it is the innocent lamb that opens not its mouth that gets slaughtered in the bad sheep's place. We deserve to get that slaughter. We deserve to have our figures marred beyond human semblance. And yet the lamb took our place. Let me ask you a question. Which is worse? Someone deserving of death, walking free, or someone completely innocent, receiving a penalty of death? Both happened to Jesus at the cross, for our sake. Both sound completely unjust. Jesus, deserving of no death, took the death in our place. So don't be a bystander to the death of Jesus. Don't walk right past the cross and say to yourself, that's because of someone else, that's for the bad guys, not because of me. I'm a good Christian who tries to do good. 
No, it was all sins, all iniquities that Jesus was hung on that tree. The only reason that we can do our best and try to do good is because we have been freed from our sin because of that cross. It was my sin that put him at that cross. And it was yours too. I think 2 Corinthians 5 says it really well. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now before I continue to our final um, bystander effect here, I know some of you may be thinking, why do we keep talking about this? Why do we keep talking about the cross? Why do we keep talking about the gospel? And I think the answer is is simpler than we could ever imagine. It's because we are very, very, very slow learners. Like I said, in our culture, the cross has been watered down. It has been diluted to just two lines. And if we look at those two lines and think, oh, Christian, without thinking of what those two lines actually stand for and what they mean for us, then who are we really worshiping? Our comfort? Our ease? We're slow learners. One of the reasons that we are slow learners, I think, is because we have a fear of the truth. That's our final number three. We can be a bystander because we have a fear of the truth. We can say to ourselves, I don't know enough about God to talk to him. Or if God is anything like some Christians I know, I want to stay away. Or I've heard enough about the cross. I know some people, a lot of people in our culture have these thoughts. Maybe some of you do too. Some of us don't know the specifics of the gospel and we don't really care to. We know that, you know, Jesus died for us and we kind of just assume he did it out of love or something and now we can go to church and, and sing and eat food, which is great. And to be fair, to be, to be fair, you don't need to know all the details of the Bible to get saved. Please don't hear me saying that. You don't need to be an epic theologian to have a right standing with God. But if we think that we can just have a vague standing with God, oh, I try my best to do good and I know God loves me, I'm done. If we think that, do we really love him and what he's done for us? Or are we serving him just out of fear of judgment, fear of death, rather than out of love for our loving father? Let's take a look at our final verses, verses 10 through 12, and try to get a grasp of why we might fear the truth. Verses 10 through 12, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. 
and he shall divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Now, even the very first verse of this is pretty shocking to the one who may, might just think, oh, Jesus died out of love and that's it. The very first verse says it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Especially considering the fact that that Jesus is the Son of God as well as God himself, the fact that he willingly was beaten, mocked, tortured, and murdered seems excessive, even unnecessary. And as Stephen mentioned before, this isn't some kind of divine child abuse. This is the Father and the Son working together to take the punishment for their people. He willingly did this. If we see the reward of Jesus' death for Jesus himself, then we start to see the bigger picture. If we focus on just the quick version of the gospel, like I said, Jesus died for my sins, that's it, I'm done, then we miss the biggest aspect of the gospel. If we think every single day Jesus died for my sins and then raised up on the third day, we miss quite possibly the biggest part that the gospel doesn't end with the resurrection. What happens after the resurrection? If you think about this entire text today, who is our entire text about? It's about Christ. It's about the suffering servant. If we think about the entire Bible, is it a story about us? I don't see my name in there. I'm not an Israelite. I'm not a Middle Eastern Jew. The entire book of the Bible is not about us. It's about Christ. That includes the gospel. Even though, yes, the gospel is entirely life-changing and a huge gift of grace for us, it's the reason why we are here worshiping. We are here worshiping Him. It's about Jesus saving His people. The will of the Lord in the gospel was to save His people. Yes, amen. It was a way to make a way for His people to be right with God without sacrificing justice for his glory alone. We're not the heroes in this story. We are the damsels in distress that get saved. A pastor that I like to listen to, he says the analogy, we like to think that, you know, we are David and our sins are Goliath and we strike down our sins. No, Jesus is David, our sins are Goliath, and we're the Israelites that are scared and want to go home. The Bible is not about us, and we see that very clearly in our final verses here, but let's take a look at one at a time. Look at the end of verse 10. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The biggest result of the gospel and have been allowed to commune with him again. Us being forgiven of our sins is part of that. We see in this verse that Jesus will get to see his offspring and shall prosper in his hand. When Jesus is offering for all guilt is accepted and we are no longer guilty, then we can be recreated with him, reconnected with him. This is the will of the Lord. 
as we have seen in the previous verse. It was prospered in Jesus because it was accomplished through Jesus. God brought us back to himself so that he may have again what is his and be worshipped for it. The next verse, verse 11 says, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. The first part of this verse is incredible. Look at it again. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be, what? Satisfied. I mentioned in my first point how the cross was absolute anguish. For Jesus. It was gruesome and horrific, but yet the result of that cross, the saving of his people, causes Jesus to be satisfied. Jesus was satisfied because the will of the Lord had been accomplished. Jesus was satisfied because God had been glorified in the defeat of sin. Jesus was satisfied because like the prodigal son's father, his people have returned to him. And we see that in the second part of verse 11. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. This knowledge, this servanthood of Jesus, made the accounted us righteous in God's sake because he bore our iniquities. Jesus knew what had to be done and he accomplished what had to be done. The gospel is a story about what Jesus has done for us, but let's not forget the how of what was done with knowledge and servitude that gives glory to Jesus rather than us, not just the result of us being saved. Jesus accomplished the unaccomplishable. He saved his people while we were yet sinners. Even though it seems like we have the better deal, the better end of the bargain by receiving salvation, we have to remember again that the gospel doesn't end with the resurrection. It ends with Jesus being glorified for his good work. And that's very clearly displayed in our final verse here, verse 12. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Listen to the things that Jesus gets because of his tremendous victory at the cross. He gets a portion with the many, or other translations say a portion with the great. So he gets to be considered with the greats. And I know that that seems kind of funny, right? Considering Jesus is the greatest. But I think what Isaiah is doing here is contrasting his servanthood with the greatness of heaven. Next, we see that he gets to divide the spoil with the strong. That salvation is Jesus's to give. Because the spoils of the victory of the war over sin is his to give out. Because he won it. He gets to be great. He gets to give out salvation because of the second half of this verse. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Salvation is not for us to grab. 
We didn't win it. Jesus did. It's his to give because he won it. Philippians 2 says it super well. Philippians 2 writes, Though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Not every tongue confess that Neil is great. Not every tongue confess that America is the greatest country in the world. Not every tongue confess that humans are the greatest animals to ever be created. No, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's not about us, it's about him. The gospel is not about us winning the war against our sin because we lose it every single day. The gospel is God winning the war for his name and bringing us back from the enemy so that we may worship him and be where we belong. Our text today is about what Jesus has done and what he gets for it. Jesus poured out his soul to death and was considered a criminal, bearing the sins of many, and that made intercession for the transgressors. And again, if you're still here thinking, why do we keep talking about this? Why do we keep talking about the cross? This is getting boring. Then you're not focusing on what the cross is. You're focusing on yourself. You're not focusing on the hero who has done this for us. Even other parts of the Bible understand that the gospel is not about us. One of the most famous, Romans 1.16, says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. The power of God for salvation. It's still of God. It's still about God. The gospel is our salvation. Yes, amen. But it is the power of God for our salvation. Just like how a loving father's promotion at work is good news for the entire family, it's still about the father. Or just like how a friend getting married means a fun wedding for everyone, it's still about the happy couple. Or how we can go to church every single week, get to see our friends, get to hear wisdom, get to enjoy fellowship. We're not here for a social club. We're here to worship God. With all these examples, we need to remember that just because we reap the benefits of something doesn't mean it's about us. And sometimes when we are a bystander to the cross, it's because we fear the truth. The truth that the gospel and all of Christianity is about Jesus rather than us. So we've seen that we can that there are multiple reasons why we can be a bystander to the gospel, whether it be avoiding the weight of our own sin, our responsibility for Jesus' death, or fear of the truth that it's not about us. We can be bystanders to the gospel. Ultimately, let's all be honest here, because we want to hold on to our sin. And we know that the gospel is where sin goes to die. 
And that's exactly why we need to engage with the gospel. That's exactly why we need to have a relationship with God, because our sin dying is the greatest news we can possibly hear. You who are struggling with addiction, you can be freed from that repeated sin that has a hold over you, because God can give you a greater affection for himself than hatred that you have for yourself. Our text today says that with his wounds we are healed. Healed. You who are burdened by guilt and pain, Christ is the one who has borne our grief and carried our sorrows, as our text says. You who are sad, scared, and confused about the world around us, come to Christ, who our text says, his chastisement brought us peace. God can offer us peace, love, mercy, and forgiveness, but most importantly, he offers us himself. Oftentimes, the bystander effect happens because no one wants to help someone in need. But God flips this completely as the bystanders are the ones in need. So are you a bystander to the gospel or are you a participant? Are you watching Jesus on the cross with a frown or are you actively bringing him your sin, praising him for taking it all? Do you just know of God or assume there is a God or is he your Lord in everything that you do? Do you use his holy word as a vague rule book or is it a light to your path and a lamp to your feet? Are you a bystander or are you a participant? And my brothers and sisters of the faith, be encouraged that this gift of salvation is really a gift of Christ himself who is all we need. You don't need a fancy version of Christianity or something else to be Christianized. No, you need Christ every day. Everything good is in Him. Our text today gives us a vision forward of the gospel, beholds front and center the suffering servant that made it happen and shall receive all the glory for it. Salvation is only found in Jesus Christ, and it is his joy and his satisfaction to divide the victories of war, the spoils of victory with his children. So let's close with a section of Ephesians that so clearly presents the gift of the gospel as a gift of Christ himself. Ephesians 2, 4 through 10. God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love for which he loved us, even though we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raises his up with us and seats us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and it is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we may walk in them. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that the gospel is all about you. We thank you so much that you gave of yourself for us completely because we could not do it ourselves. Lord, we thank you so much for the gospel and the cross that we can continue again and again and again to return to it and never run out of your mercy and love. 
you are a cup that surely overflows. Lord, we pray that as we worship and as we take communion, Lord, that our thoughts would be on you rather than us, Father. May we give you the glory that you deserve. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.